It is impossible to understand the identity of Western Christendom in Europe apart from its centuries-long antagonistic relationship with Islam. In truth, Islam and the West have been mortal enemies since Islam's inception in the 7th century. As we'll see in today's episode, the conflict between Islam and Christendom goes back much further than the First Crusade in 1095. Likewise, many assume that after the Last Crusade, which occurred in 1291, conflict between the two faiths subsided. However, even after the last official crusade, the conflict didn't really abate. In fact, it is a battle that continues even to the modern day. As Bernard Lewis writes, we tend nowadays to forget that for approximately a thousand years, from the advent of Islam in the seventh century until the second siege of Vienna in 1683, Christian Europe was under constant threat from Islam, the double threat of conquest and conversion. Most of the new Muslim domains were wrested from Christendom, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and North Africa were all Christian countries, no less, indeed rather more than Spain and Sicily. All this left a deep sense of loss and a deep fear, end quote. Another reality comes to fore when the true history of Islam is compared to the revisionist history often told today. Conflict was not caused by an expansionist Christianity that advanced into Muslim territory, but rather just the opposite. The Crusades, among other events, were reactionary and defensive campaigns to stop the invasion of a brutal new religion of tribesmen who didn't play by the same set of moral codes as the Christians did. In fact, the place where this Muslim aggression is best cataloged is in the writings of Muslim historians and chroniclers themselves. They were proud to have invaded Christian territories and made no effort to hide the barbaric, violent, and oppressive practices in their own recorded histories. They too admit that crusaders so often marched troops into Asia Minor in an attempt to stop the spread of jihad into mainland Europe and to defend already Christian territories. Before the Muslim expansion of the 7th century, Christian peoples controlled all of North Africa, Syria, and beyond. It is important in all of this that we should ask, where did this newfound tribal religion of Islam, one marked by bloody jihad and brutal, violent oppression, come from? The story begins with Muhammad bin Abdullah. He was a merchant in Mecca who lived from the years 570 to 632 AD. In 610 AD, he began telling his fellow tribesmen that the angel Gabriel had come to him in a dream and commanded him to become the prophet of Allah. The basis of this new Islamic religion was simple. It revolved around complete submission to every command of Allah. Submit to Allah, and you were known as a Muslim, which means one who submits. This was the first pillar of Islam, or the Shahada. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Originally, Muhammad preached throughout Mecca unmolested, yet without really much success. Soon, the elite ruling class of Mecca, known as the Quraysh, became weary of his proselytizing and expelled him from Mecca. He and his followers fled to the oasis region of Yathrib, later called Medina, which means the Radiant. From there, he began to launch his raids. After a decade of peaceful but rather fruitless preaching, Muhammad had won just over 100 converts to his new religion, and let's be honest, mostly from his own family. He decided to reinforce the violent aspects of his religion in an effort to spark a more powerful movement. Where his initial preaching proved futile, Muhammad found success with raiding. After 10 years of brutal raiding, Muhammad had converted nearly the whole of Arabia, 
Muhammad's scimitar had been successful. He gave his followers the command, fight them, the non-Muslims, until they testify that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Author Raymond Ibrahim writes that Muhammad had only won over some 100 followers after a decade of peaceful preaching in Mecca, but nearly the whole of Arabia after a decade of successful raiding, an average of no fewer than nine campaigns annually, speaks for itself. As Edward Gibbon observed, Muhammad employed even the vices of mankind as the instruments of their salvation. And the use of fraud and perfidy, of cruelty and injustice, were often subservient to the propagation of the faith. End quote. In 630, Muhammad marched 10,000 armed soldiers into Mecca. Ultimately, he forced the occupants of Mecca to conform to his religion. He reclaimed the city from which he had once been infamously cast out. He sent an ultimatum. Embrace Islam and you shall be safe. You've been surrounded on all sides. You're confronted with a hard case that is beyond your power. When the Kirash chieftain balked at the converter die demand, Muhammad threatened to cut off his head. The chieftain, Abu Sufyan, and his tribe immediately proclaimed the Shahada to cries of Allahu Akbar. Such was the rise of Muhammad from insignificance to immense power. One of the main attractions of Islam was its high degree of compatibility with the traditional and pre-existing values of Arabian society, an emphasis on loyalty to your tribe, enmity against other tribes, and raiding to increase wealth. This captured the feelings of Arabs very nicely. They were a tribal people. To them, tribe was everything. To be inside the tribe was to be human. To be outside was to be subhuman. A Muslim philosopher, Ibn Khaldun, writing in the 15th century, described the Arabs of his time as, quote, the most savage human beings that exist. Compared with sedentary people, they are on a level with wild, untamable animals and dumb beasts of prey. Such people are the Arabs, end quote. Of their tribal beliefs, Ibrahim says that, quote, the tribe was what humanity is to modern people. To be part of it was to be treated humanely. To be outside of it was to be treated inhumanely, end quote. Likewise, Muhammad intentionally designed his tribal religion to transcend national and linguistic barriers, as well as blood relatives. According to Ibrahim, Islam thus became a kind of super tribe to which loyalty and enmity meant everything. As the coming centuries would show, Muslims had very little regard for any human life that existed outside the boundaries of tribe and would wage endless jihads against them. To the Muslim, as one researcher has said, non-Muslims are described in the Quran as, quote, vile animals and beasts, the worst of creatures and demons, perverted transgressors and partners of Satan to be fought until religion is Allah's alone. They are to be beheaded, terrorized, annihilated, crucified, punished, and expelled and plotted against by deceit, end quote. And so the foundation of this super tribe was jihad, which means holy war. Muhammad saw all the world as two tribes. There were the followers of Allah and there were the infidels. The goal of the Muslim religion was to bring every other tribe under Allah, hence the birth of jihad, which is the violent undertaking of that mission. In the opinion of Ibrahim, one of the most lasting contributions of Muhammad was his deification of tribalism with jihad at its center. The Quran itself portrays jihad as the noblest of all endeavors. Quote, lining up in battle in the path of Allah, Muhammad said, is worthier than 60 years of worship. This deified raid or jihad led to a newfound fanaticism precisely because it promised temporal and eternal rewards. Not only were 
Victors promised the usual spoils of war, such as slaves, concubines, and plunder, but they were promised eternal paradise and total forgiveness simply for dying as a martyr or shahid. Put another way, salvation was attained through jihad. And yes, one of the eternal rewards promised was copulation with 72 virgins. That's not made up. That's not propaganda. There were also eternal torment for those who refused to participate in jihad. Such vile creatures would, Muhammad said, be tortured like no other sinful human being. What was the effect of paradise-laden promises of salvation for jihadists? Well, quite naturally, it created radical soldiers willing to do anything on the field of battle. As one Byzantine official said, quote, it is almost as if they are driven by the very demons of hell itself, end quote. As for Christendom, which originally had included much of Europe, North Africa, Syria, Egypt, and Asia Minor, it had lost nearly three-fourths of its territory to the advance and violent expansion of Islam. As such, resistance to Islam came to define European existence, as did the Christian religion. By the time 634 AD had rolled around, Heraclius, who served as Byzantine emperor from 610 to 641, had been long in fighting the Persians and then Arabs flooding into Syria, which then included Israel, Jordan, and Palestinian territories. The main reason the Roman Empire was vulnerable to a Muslim invasion was because its strength had been depleted from a lengthy conflict it had been waging with the Persian Empire. This decades-long conflict was known as the Last Great War of Antiquity. One of the fiercest of those Arabs was Khalid bin al-Walid. His path with Heraclius would eventually cross an all-out warfare. Brutal in combat, Muhammad had given Khalid his eagle, a black flag with the Shahada on it, and nicknamed him the Sword of Allah. One story captures Khalid's temperament. Ibrahim writes, Modern-day Muslims often have nothing but praise for Khalid's commitment to the Jihad, but he had a darker side. During the Rida Wars, Khalid accused Malik bin Nuwaira, a well-liked Arab chieftain, of apostasy from Islam. The Sword of Allah slaughtered him, and that same night raped, Islamic chronicles called it married, his wife Layla. Not content, he decapitated Malik, stood his head up between two stones, set it aflame, and cooked his evening meal in a cauldron above it. And Khalid ate from it that night to terrify the apostate Arab tribes and others, writes Muslim historian in Al-Kathir. It was said that Malik's hair created such a blaze as to thoroughly cook the meat, end quote. By 636, Muslim and Christian forces had met for battle. Heraclius led a multi-ethnic mix of Christians, Armenians, Georgians, Greeks, Christian Arabs, Slavs, and Franks. Their forces numbered around 30,000, accompanied by priests reciting prayers over the troops and parading relics before them. It was a distinctly Christian procession that sought to defend its faith and way of life. The Muslim contingent was astonished by what they saw. Once they had set camp, the Christian procession measured some 17 miles long. Khalid's forces, meanwhile, swelled to 24,000 after Caliph Omar had sent reinforcements from Arabia per Khalid's request. Muslim sources say that to see Christendom fall was Omar's delight, and his meat was their humiliation, his very breathing their destruction. One Muslim jihadist and a companion of Muhammad said, We have tasted blood and find none sweeter than the blood of Romans. Khalid himself made no illusions about why he and his Muslim army had gathered. Quote, It is neither hunger nor poverty that has driven us from our land in Arabia. We, the Arabs, are drinkers of blood, and we know there is no blood more tasty than that of the Greeks. That is why we have come, 
to spill and to drink your blood, end quote. Parties from both sides met to discuss a diplomatic solution. After Christian forces refused to confess the Shahada, 8,000 Muslims, quote, marched before the Roman camp, carrying the heads of 4,000 Christian soldiers mounted atop their spears. These were the remains of 5,000 reinforcements that had come from Amman to join the main Christian army at Yarmouk, only to be ambushed and destroyed, end quote. This horrific practice was in keeping with verses in the Quran to strike terror into the hearts of the infidels by decapitating them. After parading the piked heads before Christian forces, the jihadists pushed 1,000 more living Christian captives to the front. There they forced them to kneel and began to savagely hack off their heads to the utter shock and horror of the Christian army. In preparation for battle, Christian priests prayed death prayers over the kneeling Christian forces who had just watched as their brethren were ignominiously beheaded. Vahan, an Arab Christian commander, told his men, quote, these Arabs who stand before you seek to enslave your children and women, end quote. The Romans were fighting for the defense of nothing less than their land, life, family, and faith. Meanwhile, Abu Sufyan, once an enemy of Muhammad, but now leading the prophet's tribal armies, pranced around on his horse, waving his spear, and exhorted the Arabs to jihad in the way of Allah so that they might seize their Christian lands and cities and enslave their women and children. The battle was upon them. It would last for six grueling days. On day one, a large phalanx of Byzantine forces marched ahead through a shower of Arab arrows that were said to blot out the sun. Taking heavy losses, they pressed forward, hitting the Arab front with ferocity, such that a bloodbath of close proximity fighting ensued. On day four, Jabla's Christian Arab cavalry broke through the Muslim center and met Khalid's horse and camel. Savage fighting killed many on both sides, but eventually the Christians were forced to retreat. Christian archers sent volley after volley of arrows into the Muslim pursuers. So fierce was the barrage from Roman archers that it is said some 700 Muslims lost an eye, and thus it was called the Day of Lost Eyes. On the final day of battle, Muslim chroniclers say much about the Christian right flank, whom they deemed the mightiest of the Romans. These warriors tied themselves together with chains, displaying their determination and vowed by Christ and the cross and the four churches to fight to the last man. Khalid was astounded and concerned by their valor. In response, he sent his troops to attack the leftward flank, and unfortunately for the Romans, a dust storm kicked up, confounding their movements. Amidst the confusion, the Roman cavalry broke off and headed north. This action left the right flank exposed and vulnerable. Ibrahim writes, Realizing that they were forsaken by the rest of the imperial army, the Christian infantry, including the chained men, maintained formation and withdrew westward, the only place open to them. They were soon trapped between an Islamic hammer and anvil. A crescent of Arabs spreading from north to south continued closing in on them from the east, while a semicircle of the Wadi Rakad's precipitous ravines lay before the Christians to the west. Khalid had already captured the only bridge across the Wadi. As darkness descended on this volatile corner of the world, the final phase of war took place on the evening of August 20th. The Arabs, whose night vision was honed by desert life, charged the trapped Romans, who, according to Muslim sources, fought valiantly. Soon the terrain echoed with the terrifying din of Muslim shouts and battle cries. Shadows suddenly changed into blades that penetrated flesh. The wind brought the cries of comrades as the enemy stealthily penetrated the ranks among the infernal noise of cymbals, drums, and battle cries. 
It must have been even more terrifying because they had not expected the Muslims to attack by dark, which was one of Muhammad's strategies. Crowded and blinded as they were, the Christians could not properly maneuver and even lacked elbow room to utilize their weapons. Muslim cavalrymen continued pressing on the Roman infantry, using the hooves and knees of their steeds to knock down the wearied fighters. Pushed finally to the edge of the ravine, rank after rank of the remaining forces of the Imperial Army, including all the chained men, fell down the steep precipices to their death. Several other soldiers, including officers, knelt, uttered a prayer, made the sign of the cross, and waited for the onrushing Muslims to strike them down. No prisoners were taken on that day. The Byzantine army, which Heraclius had spent a year of immense exertion to collect, had entirely ceased to exist. There was no withdrawal, no rearguard action, no nucleus of survivors. There was nothing left. As the moon filled the night sky and the victors stripped the slain, cries of, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger and Allahu Akbar rang throughout the Yarmouth Valley. The King's Hall Podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the King's Hall Podcast. We are in Season 3, Episode 2. Nobody is more excited than Dan Burkholder to be here because his face always, Brian says, pure, unadulterated excitement. Just rivers of joy. Rivers of joy. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks. See what I mean? (laughs) Do you see what I'm working with here? Thanks. Can't you tell I'm like a child on Christmas? Yeah. Yeah, like a depressed child. <laughs> a child that was run over by a train and is in a vegetative state. <laughs> oh, brutal. Wow. I'm just kidding. Guys, and, and, guys look. And, and the raging Cajun Frenchman himself, Brian Sauvé, welcome to the hey. show. It is good to be here, Eric, and thank you for assigning me to read possibly the longest cold open outside of the Haunted Cosmos podcast of all time. I just I just want to say it's ironic that you say the word jihad like President G, like there's an X on the front. And how did you pronounce Oaxaca? That has X's in it, right? But wait, 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 wait. Isn't jihad pronounced jihad? Jihad. Well, how would you pronounce it? Jihad. <laughs> It's a jihad. It's, it's, a jihad. it's a jihad, all right, fellas. We we decided that we're going to pronounce all the Muslim names as if we're from West Virginia just to make them more mad. I actually I don't, don't think, think that's, that's what they I think they're like. going to be mad about before. I don't think we need the mispronunciation. They're probably not too I don't think they pleased. have internet in the hollers. I thought you were talking about the Middle East. Are we just oh, trying to they don't have the wheel. I thought you were I mean, talking maybe. about the West Virginians. No, 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 We're just no, trying no. to offend everybody. No, I uh, actually, no, I'm saying the West Virginians are based, and, and what we're going to do is make the Muslims mad by mispronouncing all their names egregiously. On purpose. It's not because we're ignorant, guys. Despite the fact that we have annoyed or offended most of our audience by now, uh, we're going to make it up to them, Brian. Yeah, we are. We've got a giveaway, guys. We do. We're going to be doing a giveaway of a great book along with the release of this episode. This is one that one in the stack that we used in preparation. We're going to be trying to do some of these giveaways throughout the season. This one's going to be God's Battalions by Rodney Stark. And we're going to put everyone in a drawing who signs up today for any uh, tier of support on our Patreon channel and send you a book for free. You don't have to cover shipping or the cost of the book, a brand new copy of it, direct to your door. So if you sign up for our Patreon, any of the tiers today, which is Lord willing, Friday, January 26th, Anno Domini 2024, 
you'll be in the running. You don't have to be the first to sign up or whatever. Because when it comes out at midnight, the Europeans get a head start. Yeah, it's, it's kind of not fair. So, and and everybody knows we got a lot of European <laughs> listeners on the Kings Hall. I mean, come on. Uh, and also, hey, speaking of our Patreon, Eric, we're doing a special show this season just for patrons. Called what? It is called the Deus Vault. What a clever title. Yeah. So we've had one episode already. People can check this out on the, how does Brian say it? The Notre Dame? No, I can't even. Notre Dame? <laughs> I can't even be <laughs> that close. <laughs> Notre Dame. Notre Dame. You guys, no one knows how to roll their R's like Notre Dame. And it offends me. There you go. Notre Dame. Everybody knows I'm Notre, Notre Dame. Dame to win the Super Bowl this year. Okay. Everybody knows Notre Dame oh, is Irish, <laughs> not French. And, and also, I know, I know that Notre Dame's not in the Super Bowl, just for the record. Okay. Before someone says know it. That. Yeah, he doesn't. It's actually, a college He's covering team. all bases right now. I'm He's covering, covering all the bases. bases. No, the Dave's fault. This is, this is a great little show that we're doing this year. It's like anywhere from short, like 10 minutes up to longer episodes as well. Telling stories that didn't make the main episodes, but we thought were really interesting nonetheless. Yeah. It was every week. Yeah. So Davis Walt, the first one we talked about uh, burial versus cremation, why Christians mm. are typically doing burial. And we also, Dan, we talked about the catacombs under Paris. Uh, I'm pitching hard for Haunted Cosmos to cover this, but um, I don't know if they're- The like, catacombs? Yeah. Man if they're man to enough do to do it. A, you know, uh, let me tell you. Haunted. We might be, man. The Haunted Catacombs. So you can check that out in the Deus Vault. The next one coming up, gentlemen, I'm really excited for. Just want to give a quick teaser. We are going to be talking about one a hot topic in Christian nationalism is often you hear this said that change has to come from the bottom up. Mm. We're going to be talking about instances in which maybe that's not the case. Many instances. <laughs> Many, if almost not every. Almost <laughs> every major one, actually. Uh, but gonna, Change didn't start with the bottom. That's right. We're going to be talking about uh, somebody that my friend Alex Petkus Got us turned on to, which was the one and only Sulla. Got Elon Musk's attention, so it's got my attention. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We're going to be talking about that in the next Davis Vault, so be sure to sign up if you're not already for Patreon. Yes. And you can get exclusive access to that yeah. show. And make that make make everything possible here that we do. We put a lot of work into these, these shows, a lot of work researching, reading, writing, sound designing, all that stuff goes into hopefully making this edifying to you guys. Because we, we need to retake history. We need to retake history as Christians. That's a big thesis of this season. In this episode particularly, we're talking all about learning how to read history in, in a covenantal way, right? Learning how to read history the way a Christian ought to read history, especially to understand how to live our part in the story faithfully, right? We're not just doing this as an academic exercise. We want to learn from our brothers and sisters in the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries and say, what lessons can we learn from them of their courage, uh, of the battles that they fought and won? And also, how can we learn from the sin? And how can we learn from the failures of our forefathers? And in this episode particularly, we want you to make eye contact, if you will, with, with one of the more sobering parts of reading history, which is learning how to see God's chastisement on his people. When an enemy comes and routs us and we flee before him, if we know our Bibles, if we know how to read the covenant, we, we, should, we should be learning something then. We should be asking some questions when we see that happening. When a when hundred cause a thousand to flee and we're the ones fleeing, that should make us ask, why, why? Why did God let this happen? It's not as if his arm was short. It's not as if he couldn't have prevented it. 
so this this episode is about a significant battle. It is a very significant battle in history, one of the most significant battles in the history of mankind, I would argue. It's also about the rise of a great enemy. But underneath all of that, we really want to make eye contact with sin and righteousness and repentance and discipline. Because these have a huge bearing, I think you guys would agree, on our lives today and on the state of Christianity today. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing, Brian, that you point out is it's just interesting uh, so much of the history that we've been told, the history that we learn in public education, um, as we said in the cold open, was that you know Christians were uh, being good colonialists mm. and they invaded Muslim lands. Oh, those poor Muslims. <laughs> those poor Muslims. There they were, just trying to invent the wheel. <laughs> there they were, inventing zero and the wheel. Yeah, dang it. Actually, both round. Both round. They couldn't it put fits. Two, two and two together. And well, so they... here come the Christians, mean Christians. <laughs> here come the mean Christians just to steal away all their stuff. And ruin their utopic society. But yeah, it really is interesting with Islam. It, it comes on the scene really quickly. Yeah. I think that's one of the fascinating things about it. Um, it didn't take uh, hundreds of years even for it to no. develop in power and scope and what it was able to conquer with Christendom. I think we're reading this. It's like three-fourths of the Christian empire is gone within 100 years of Islam. It, it's just routed. Coming on the scene. And I think also uh, as you're reading these stories, especially in Muslim chronicles – they are the ones telling the story of how brutal Islam is. Oh, yeah, they're proud of it. And I think as you know, we're reading this, we're researching for the season. It's one of those things, Dan, you, you just see the brutality, and it's overwhelming to us. Yeah. I think in our world. And, and I've, watched, I've watched The Last Kingdom. I've seen some brutality on TV, but the stuff of reality is so much more severe, it seems, than even fiction. Yeah, with the, the, the scene of the Muslim invaders coming into Yarmouk, with 4,000 heads on their spears. Yeah. And then lining up the remaining 1,000 Christian prisoners that they had and cutting off their heads to to strike terror and fear into the Christian armies. I mean, that's, that is a minor glimpse of the oh, brutalities yeah. that they commit. It gets worse. Yeah, those, those people had it easy. Yeah. Compared to some of the other victims of Muslim aggression later. I mean... I would rather have been a soldier beheaded at Yarmouk than a slave of a caliph late, you know, later in the story. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, too, when you think about the success of Islam. Um, I often think about uh, reading the story of, like, the Comanche Indians. Mm -hmm. Part of what made them so successful, their tribal, um, a lot of the way that they rode horses was actually very similar. But yeah. the brutality was what something that, like, the American settlers just weren't prepared to handle. No. They thought you could march an army, and so it's a very different style of combat. But there's some other factors, too, that I want to ask you guys. Like, why was it so effective at spreading the way that it did? What made it so dangerous and lethal? Yeah, you see in the early history that we mentioned in the cold open where we have this period of time where Muhammad is proselytizing. He's attempting to spread his message, his this claim that he had been visited by the angel Gabriel and that he was the prophet of Muhammad or that he was the prophet of Allah. And had very little success. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are cults today that through similar means, just proselytizing and that sort of thing, have had more success than Muhammad did in that decade. Jim Jones, I've, you know, how many people were poisoned at Jonestown? Way more than 100. And he only gathered 100 people. But then all of a sudden, something happens where a decade later, he's got most of Arabia converted. What was the change? <laughs> it it's ob it's not there's no question what the change was the change was that all of a sudden he said oh 
you know what, actually, God's telling me that what we really need and what he really desires, what his will is, is that we would bring everybody into the tribe through raiding and through violent means. And so all of a sudden, these tribal peoples are faced with the basically the idea of, would you like to die and have all of your family killed and everything you've ever worked for taken from you? Or would you like to convert and follow this guy? And they were like, we'll follow that guy. That is the interesting thing. Uh, people say that uh, convert or die was a real thing. And they're actually right. It's just that it was Islam yeah. doing most of the convert or die. Um, it, you mentioned Jonestown, 900 people. Yeah, Jonestown. wow. So, yeah. I thought it was a lot, but that's actually higher than I remembered. Yeah, it's quite a few. Uh, Dan, thoughts on that reaction? Well, yeah. Actually, we see the same terror tactics used today in our polite society by our government overlords and by the media. But ser- I mean, seriously, though. Yeah. Uh, fear is really powerful. Yes. And so right terror. now, yeah, fear and terror. So it's going to be, uh, we're always fed like a slow I- IV drip of this fear in order to control people. And so you can see this with like the fear of global warming and acid mm-hmm. rain. And like, you could go back in time and, and see how people are manipulated through fear. This is obviously like a horrifying tactic that they're using Yeah, where it's like, okay, we'll kill you. We'll take your possessions and we'll enslave your wife and your children as sex slaves. Or you can say the Shahada or Shahada. Yeah. yeah. And, and you'll be one of us. Mm -hmm. And then there's eternal rewards, by the way, you get the 72 virgins. Yeah. And so there are other uh, religions that actually mirror some of this. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking the same thing. Like it, what he does is it's not just the fear. There's the fear, the stick, but the carrot. This is this you see this often with cultic false religions is that they uh, valorize debauchery. They mm-hmm. actually uh, make debauchery and sin and the flesh into rewards. So instead of this Christian gospel, which includes the forgiveness of your sin, but it also includes deny yourself, take up your cross and follow the crucified Lord. Deny your flesh, crucify your passions and desires, have them rightly ordered and stop being a lustful, greedy, selfish, all, you know, vainly ambitious beast and be a true man again. Whereas Islam comes in and basically says, no, to be a beast is to be a true man. To be a beast is to be the disciple of Allah. Here, let's, let's give you Multiple, you know, any man can have as many women as he wants. Um, let's say that take violence. Like, what are the the two basis urges of the male flesh? Violence and sex. And both of those are turned into the fruits of the spirit in Islam. As the saying goes, gold is the money of kings. Silver is the money of gentlemen. But debt is the money of slaves. If you're tired of seeing your wealth sapped by the silent theft of inflation, consider adding gold to your financial plan. Gold and silver have been recognized as sound money and a store of wealth for centuries. Converting your savings into gold and silver will protect and preserve your wealth so that one day you'll be able to pass down a true inheritance to your children's children. That's where our friends at Alpine Gold Exchange come in, offering 0% buy-sell spread, gold leases with up to 3.5% annual return, paid in gold, by the way, and secure vaulting right here in Utah. Alpine Gold approaches every transaction with fairness, honesty, and respect, reflecting a strong Christian business ethic in all that they do. Head to ogden.gold today or tap the link in the description to sign up or schedule an appointment to speak with an Alpine Gold advisor today and see what would best serve your family. 
And just so you know, if you schedule a call, you'll be speaking with Jace, Ethan, or Stu, three members of Refuge Church right here in Ogden. Head to ogden.gold and check it out today. Today's episode is sponsored by Premier Body Armor, your top choice for safeguarding your family. What sets them apart? Well, Premier isn't here to convince you to wear a plate carrier around town. Nope. They're focused on innovating armor right into your normal everyday life. Think bulletproof laptop case or lightweight armor insert that fits into your favorite bag and stops most handgun, shotgun, and even rifle ammunition. Unlike much of the tactical industry, choosing Premier Body Armor not only ensures that you're getting amazing armor, but you'll be doing business with a family-owned Christian company. Visit premierbodyarmor.com today and use promo code KINGSHALL for 10% off your order today. Got questions? Reach out to customer service or send their president an email directly at alex at premierbodyarmor.com and you can speak to him yourself. Don't wait to invest your family's security, but reach out today to Premier Body Armor. Don't carry a bag? No worries. How about a moisture-wicking athletic t-shirt with minimalist and lightweight soft armor panels built in? Check the link in the show notes or visit premierbodyarmor.com today. You know, there's nothing quite like a great cup of coffee in the morning. Here at New Christendom Press, we've really been enjoying coffee from our friends at Squirrely Joe's Coffee, a family-owned coffee company from Illinois. Joe and his wife, Rachel, put a ton of effort into quality roasted beans and wholeheartedly support us in our vision to bring all of Christ to all of life. Yes, even to that cup of coffee that's in your hands. You can order your first batch of coffee from Squirrely Joe's by going to squirrelyjoes.com or by clicking the link in the show notes below. First-time customers will receive 20% off their first order, so be sure to head to their website. Again, that's squirrelyjoes at squirrelyjoes.com. Let them help you in your mission while you help them in theirs. Caffeinating the Modern Reformation. Do you desire to be shrewd financially for the sake of your family and future generations? We know that a robust society depends on getting this right. Success in building and passing on personal wealth. Let's be mature, responsible leaders with the resources God expects us to turn a profit on, to love our children and children's children well. Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial integrates investments, debt, insurance, tax strategies, and legacy planning in a holistic approach, coaching his clients to act wisely. You can do better than you received. You can affect your family's trajectory and maximize your efforts to set up long-term fruitfulness. Joe starts with your values and goals, then provides impactful counsel to help you form and implement your financial plan. Click on the link in the description for Backwards Planning Financial and contact Joe today to get started. Rating and violence and sexual debauchery are both valorized in Islam. And you see this in other religions too. Mormonism in its early founding is very similar. I think that's probably yeah, that's what you where were. I was going. Yeah. We, it, it, take us there. Well, no, I mean, so you have this actually a really similar pattern in many, many ways, yeah. but, but just in the proselytizing and things like that, mm-hmm. you have not as many early adherents, but then uh, as soon as you introduce a polygamous sort of relationships, it's going to attract certain types of men yeah. and certain types of women to that sort of thing. So uh, like you said, when you valorize or virtuize some form of debauchery, 
it becomes more attractive to the carnal man. Yeah, you have Joseph Smith, the prophet, taking multiple wives, sometimes marrying sisters without the knowledge of the other sister, telling men that they needed to give him their wives because God had said. And it's just very obvious and convenient that God just so happens to agree with the lusts of Joseph Smith. Same thing with the the lusts of Muhammad. Muhammad married, I think, a nine-year-old girl at one point. Um, didn't consummate the marriage until she was a whopping 11 or something like that. And so he married multiple, even very young girls. You, you just see the play that's being run, um, even to the point where there's debate. There, there's kind of, I see two possibilities with these sorts of things. One, you just have a demon that's genuinely appearing to these men uh, and then telling them, you know, hey, by the way, God said this. And, oh, guess what? All of your wildest fl- fantasies of your flesh can be played out. Uh or they lied and made it up. And they could have been different. One could have lied and one could have had a genuine demonic encounter. But it's hard to tell the difference because the world of flesh and the devil ultimately all preach the same false gospel, which is uh, instead of my life for yours, it's everyone else's life for mine, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's Islam. That's, that's, that's uh, Mormonism. That's fill in the blank. Well, I think one of the interesting connecting points too um, – as you read kind of these pillars, I think this is – Raymond Ibrahim is really good about this. Uh, you'll hear his interview in the Patreon exclusive show. But in connecting what Islam actually taught, teaches, um, and then you know what acts have been carried out throughout history. So we're talking about the 7th century. But fast forward to 2013 in the United States, uh, Jokar Tsarnaev and his brother, I believe, uh, blow up a bomb at the Boston Marathon – um, they're citing Islam. They're quoting all these Islamic texts. Um, and so you see these same things are still on display. Um, that's why the terror tactics. That's why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, for us today, it's especially important as we're combating the narratives that we're told this is a religion of peace, right? And so we need to know. I think so much of this, if you read Sun Tzu and the Art of War, you need to know who your enemy is. Uh, so when I read a lot of the early history about Islam and how they took over, to me, it's a warning to know thy enemy. I mean, to, and, and it could be that we're dealing yeah. not just with Islam, but um, with wokeness and CRT and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think a lot of times Christians can be very naive about not taking their enemies seriously. Absolutely. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that would be one of the key things to, to learn from this. Huge lesson here. Before Yarmouk, Christians had viewed the Muslim problem as kind of a nuisance, It's a border problem. We've got these backwards tribesmen with their out, you know, their tribalistic tactics that are inferior to our military tactics. And uh, they're they're just kind of a nuisance. It's kind of like the equivalent of maybe drug smuggling at the Mexican border. Yeah. But no one thinks that Mexicans are invading America. Wait, that's a different episode. (laughs) Okay. So they did. (laughs) Dan's looking at me like, I hope they delete that. No. (laughs) No, I hope you say more. (laughs) Actually, it's, there might be an analog there, but so they looked at it. They looked at it. They've got this real serious enemy with the Persians, ancient enemy. It's called the last great war of antiquity for a reason, because here's this, uh, the, the enemy they'd been fighting for centuries and centuries, similar tactics, big armies, you know, big phalanx of soldiers, professional militaries, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, the next thing they know, their big, scary army has been completely wiped out. And now too late, they realize that they're about to get put to flight for quite a while and routed. Similar thing happens to us all the time, where the enemies come in and we we think that, I, I think we underestimate the effectiveness of the, sh- of the shrewd worldly tactics that they will 
take. And we think that we're going to be able to kind of kumbaya them away and just be like, well, you know, good Christians don't, don't fight. We're, we're, we're just, you know, Christ said to turn the other cheek. And so, and what, what they do is they infiltrate us and then they, uh, they weaponize our softness and porousness to being conquered. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, behind the lines in your ranks, you have just an army that's already occupying you and they've, they've conquered you. They've taken all this ground from you. They've won and you're now put to flight. I think similar things have happened. The Muslims, obviously it was literal military conquest. Whereas in our case, it was much more uh, like propaganda war and war for the mind and defeating us without a shot in many ways, even more impressive today, the infiltration of, I think some of modernism and leftism into the Christian ranks and Christian nations and things like that. But I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's a huge lesson from Yarmouk and from the early Islamic history is like you, Christians need to be uh, shrewd. They need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And they need to be willing to present strength and fight hard against these enemies and understand that the same things are at stake today that were at stake then, our children. Yeah, I think it's also interesting because you'll have, uh, even in the modern day, guys like, I think it was like Richard Dawkins. I could be wrong about this, but it was, I'm almost positive it was an atheist who said this. Uh, There was a video that was floating around and he was talking about, he said, just remember the first people who always open the gates to the barbarians are people on your team at the gates. Like that's who's going to let this stuff in. Yeah. And so I, I think being aware of that, being aware of uh, church leaders who are actually the last couple of years encouraging us not to fight, um, that sort of thing, that would make me very leery. Yeah. Uh, and then saying, okay, who is going to fight? Yeah. Um, typically speaking, uh, as we've pointed out, you'll see that God defends his people by raising up leaders who are fighters. Yeah. And so those are some things that we're, we're looking for. One of the other things that's really interesting about Yarmouk, uh, Dan, is the, the – Brian mentioned this, but – maybe the most pivotal battle in Western history. That that seems like a yeah. big statement. Yeah. But I think, uh, and help me do this, but I think we can actually substantiate that claim. So three quarters of Christendom is lost would be one of the, the arguments. But why was this battle so pivotal? Well, this was the gate that you're talking about. Yeah. The Yarmuk was the gate. This, this was the battle because this was the substantial part of the Muslim army. And so if mm-hmm. the Christians had defeated them there at Yarmouk, the advance, well, who knows what would have happened. But at that point, the advance would have stopped. Yeah. There would not have been the absolute route that had happened with the continuing pursuit that the Islam forces continued throughout all of Christendom, really. I mean, almost all of it, all the way into Europe, into Central Europe. Yeah. And so... uh I think that's why it's one of the most pivotal battles in Western civilization is because this battle de- decided the trajectory of Islam in Christendom. Yeah. And like wo- world history. Oh, yeah. yes. And world history to, to the point where, uh, like you said, in the cold open, Christendom and Islam defined the Middle Ages, the battle between them. In fact, their identities became uh, integrally entwined mm-hmm. because of the outcome of this battle. Yeah. And and what happened as well, along with that conquering, 
and this is important to understand the Crusades as well, is that they didn't just conquer these Christian territories, period. They also conquered and then enslaved the Christian inhabitants. Yeah. So they were – one of the narratives you'll hear frequently is that, wow, the, the Muslims were so advanced. They were, they were religiously pluralistic. They would allow other religions to practice in their area. You could be a Christian and a Jew, and you would have legal protection as a dhimmi under these Islamic regimes. Wasn't that great? And it was like, yeah, but keep going. Like, <laughs> keep, 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 keep going. Under, what was it like to be a dhimmi? And it was like you could not really practice your faith openly. You couldn't build your churches or maintain your properties. And they were functionally slaves. Wasn't there a guy that made Christians wear like eight pound crosses around their necks? I mean, they, there was many instances like that. Yeah. Randomly, you would just get slaughtered. Like your entire family would just get wiped out all of a sudden. Wow. Dimmies would, they would have to pay a heavy tax, the jizya. They would have to uh, basically be subservient and and they would have this kind of uh, loyalty oaths to their overlords. But what happened was often if Christians came and attempted to liberate or reconquer a Christian area that had been taken, they would just slaughter all the Christian inhabitants very quickly. And so when when you're talking about the conquering of Christian lands, we're talking about areas where for centuries, longer than the history of America, Christians had, and I, I mean the only part of American history that's that matters, 1776. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, I feel like a boomer right now with one of those shirts with the crazy uh-huh. font that's uh-huh. like, you know, most of our listeners own one of those, right? Oh, sorry guys, <laughs> sorry guys. No, Eric, do you I- own I'm one wearing of those? one right now. Wearing <laughs> one right now. Uh, so we're talking about well-established Christian societies that were now. You can think about what it would be like if your brothers and sisters were fu- enslaved and being uh, destroyed under wicked and oppressive enemies, you start to understand some even more of the motivation later for the Crusades uh, when they come up a few centuries later, the stories that are coming out of these areas and the types of things that were happening. So Yarmouk, yes, a gate led to the conquering of huge swaths of Christian territory, but even humanly speaking, uh, absolute oppression of uh, and hor- horrible scale of the Christians who had lived there. Yeah, I think one of the other points we might make about this is uh, we talked about the War of Antiquity, last great War of Antiquity with the Persians. It's interesting, um, I know uh, with Heraclius, he has a lot of success during that campaign, feels a lot of what might be the glow of victory. Yeah. And then maybe it has a blind spot over this one. I mean, yeah. starts to see that it's a real problem, but they get annihilated um, and then they say, you know, for a good portion of the rest of his career, he's kind of wounded by this. Yeah, because he wasn't there. Mm-mm. If, I think he was ill or he, he had some kind of sickness or in injury that he was healing. Correct. Uh, behind, well, you know, in another area that was in friendly forces. And he had a- avoided for a long time basically waging – what's the word? Risking his entire army on one battle. He had attempted as a good general tactically – to, you know, keep his force intact and wage smaller battles and defensive battles and kind of hold the line and not make it so simple where one battle could decide it all. Because, you know, you never know. Sometimes in history, battles with five to one odds have turned against the five in favor of the one. And he knew this. He wasn't a fool. 
um, but got outmaneuvered and ended up having to risk his whole army. And, and history tells us it did not go well. It did not go well. Yeah, and I think the natural question that arises is why did God allow this to happen? Yeah. Because of the ruthless devastation Islam wrought, Christians often referred to them as demonic forces and described their works in apocalyptic language on hearkening to see the severe judgments doled out in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. The vast majority of Christians at the time described Muslims not even as men, but as godless savages come to destroy all that is sacred. They were barbarous, tribal, and bloodthirsty. Likewise, the widespread Muslim practice was to target and destroy churches, crosses, and Christian symbols and sacraments. Anastasius of Sinai said that the Saracens were perhaps worse than the demons. After all, the demons are frequently much afraid of the mysteries of Christ. I mean, his holy body, the Eucharist, the cross. But these demons of flesh trample all under their feet, mock it, set fire to it, and destroy it. End quote. Interestingly, even the oldest Muslim sources say that Christians saw these Arabs as demons. A natural question arose in the minds of Christians after the sorrow they endured at the Battle of Yarmouk. Why did God allow Islam to have such success against the cause of Christ? Christian philosophers, leaders, and priests at the time of the Muslim victories all wrestled with that question. Beyond the military defeats that Christians endured, there had also been radical destruction of households, infrastructure, and institutions at every level of society following the battle. Many Christian men had died in vain to defend their homes, while their women and children were raped and are enslaved. Many of the once great churches of the Eastern Empire had been flung down and trampled. Some converted into Muslim mosques, and the natural question was, why? The influential Greek patriarch Sophronius, who lived during this upheaval, raised these same questions in a sermon shortly after the Battle of Yarmouk. He clearly recognized how pivotal and devastating the moment was for Christendom. His questions illustrate how devastating the Muslim victories and barbarous conquests had been. Why are the troops of the Saracens attacking us? Why has there been so much destruction and plunder? Why are there incessant outpourings of human blood? Why are the birds of the sky devouring human bodies? Why have the churches been pulled down? Why is the cross mocked? Why is Christ blasphemed by pagan mouths, the vengeful and God-hating Saracens? The abomination of desolation clearly foretold to us by the prophets overrun the places which are not allowed to them. Plunder cities, devastate fields, burn down villages, and set fire to the holy churches. Overturn the sacred monasteries, oppose the Byzantine armies arrayed against them, and in fighting, raise up the trophies of war and add victory to victory, end quote. Among Christians, including Siphonerus, there was one central explanation as to why devastation had come. God was judging the church for its toleration of vile practices, just as he had used pagan cultures to punish the Hebrew tribes. When they went astray in the Old Testament, God was now using Islam to punish them for their sins, which raises another important question. Which sins were to blame? Which sins would warrant God bringing this level of devastation and judgment upon his people? 
If the book Apocalypse is to be believed, it was a severe set of sins, written in the late 7th century and for hundreds of years believed to be prophetic. The Apocalypse details the sin that was thought to have caused the dramatic Christian fall, that document says. Thus, not because he loved them, the Muslims, did the Lord God give them power to seize the land of the Christians, but because of the lawlessness of Christians. The likes of it had never occurred, nor may it occur in the entire generations of the earth. For why did men put on the clothes of adulterous women and prostitutes, adorn themselves as women, and openly stand in the squares and markets of towns and change their natural practice for an unnatural one? Likewise, women did the same things as the men had done. Father, son, and brother had intercourse with one woman who touched every kinsman. For this reason, God delivered them into the hands of the barbarians, that is, because of their sin and stench. The women will pollute themselves through the men who are already polluted, and the sons of Ishmael will cast lots for them. End quote. As the Apocalypse describes, many Christians believe the cause of their downfall was the toleration of sexual sin in their midst, which was a mix of cross-dressing, homosexuality, prostitution, and yes, what we today call transgenderism. Men would dress as female whores and perform lewd acts with men. Women dressed up as men and committed sexually indecent acts with women. Sophonarus and others recognized that such practices were forbidden in Deuteronomy 22.5, which says... A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. It was a natural conclusion at the time for Christians to assume that God was punishing them for the atrocious sins they had allowed to go on in their own camp. Such evil was seen as the sole reason behind the Arab conquest. Arabs also believed God to be on their side, but for different reasons. They believed that the Christian religion had committed the sin of polytheism by teaching Trinitarian doctrine. Muhammad had rejected the teaching that Christ died and rose from the grave. They thought that Allah was pleased with them and so would deliver the Christian infidels to their scimitar. As to the practical reasons why Islam was successful, there are at least three plausible reasons given by Raymond Ibrahim. First, he notes that Islam was notorious for and quite successful with his employment of terror-driven tactics. Muhammad specifically gave instructions to his commanders to instill fear in the enemy through the use of decapitation as seen at the Battle of Yarmouk. They were brutal and beastly in their devices. Such things are known to cause fear, and fear is detrimentally paralyzing to humans. This seems to have worked. The second reason Islam was successful is because of its employment of trickery and deceit. The Chronicle of 754 says, Saracens, influenced by their leader Muhammad, conquered and devastated Syria, Arabia, and Mesopotamia more by stealth than manliness, and not so much by open invasion as by persisting in stealthy raids. Thus, with cleverness and deceit and not by manliness, they attacked all of the adjacent cities of the empire. End quote. The third reason for Islam's success is the religious zeal they possessed, aided by the promise of sensual pleasures, and described at length in the cold open. Is it unrealistic to think that Christianity was judged by God for allowing heinous sexual sins in its midst? And thus, as he did with the Assyrians in Jeremiah and Isaiah's day, he raised up an enemy to chastise them. And if that is possible, we might ask in our own day, Is God going to bring similar judgments against us? 
Is that judgment already upon us? However we answer these questions, this much about the historical record is clear. The Islamic Jihad had taken Christendom by storm and would remain a thorn in Western civilization's side for centuries. Well, gentlemen, I think we can all agree the main culprit here is the trannies. <laughs> look, <laughs> look, let's be honest. No, actually, w- were you not a little surprised when I, I read that yeah. in, uh, so this is from Sword and Scimitar yeah. Yeah. in Ibrahim's book, but I was like, wait, what am, I mean, it always seems to come back to these like Sodom and Gomorrah yeah. uh, type situations. Gibeah in the book of Judges is identical where God is bringing fiery judgment and there's always like some vile sexual sin and trannyism seems to be uh, in the mix in the, you know, even pre-crusade times uh, in Yarmouk. Surprised? Uh, what was your reaction? Shocked. Yeah, I read that and I had to reread it again when I was going through Ibrahim's book because I was like, "Is that? am I reading this right? Mm-hmm. Is he saying back then in Christendom this is happening? <laughs> yeah. I mean. Oh, yeah. It's, it was – it is uh, – just it, it doesn't fit in with my presuppositions. That's why well, it's so shocking. It, it's the classic cycle that nicotine men create good times. Good times create weed men, and weed men create hard times. That's very true. You know what I'm saying? Sin. I know what you're saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, it is It is real, though, that you see this, uh, this striking rhyme scheme that happens through history. We were just talking about this at yeah. lunch today, that – it, historical cycles, they're not identical, but they do rhyme where you have this kind of like tendency in late stages of civilizations uh, to see rampant s- sexual promiscuity and not just promiscuity, but really strange sexual deviances. Well, this was even true of Rome, like the decadence. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you get a decadent society and then you start having really weird sexual sins, you know, Epstein Island type. You know, guys in wheelchairs on jet skis. Weird mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. If you catch my drift, Dan, do you catch my drift? I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. We have, like, weird stuff going on right now. Like, Do you guys want to go to the island? LOL. <laughs> Are you talking yeah, about yeah, Stephen, Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking typing yes, on his. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm following. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, we've got you. Super okay. got gross. You. Super. But one of the things, you know, we can look at that. I'm not downplaying it, but we can also look at history. Can We can say. We don't necessarily need to go the route of things are worse than they've ever been. Right. There's always these cycles of societal downturns. Right. And, you know, one of the things we do need to be aware of, though, is God definitely brings judgment. Yes. And the Muslims were a fierce, I think, a fierce judgment. Well, that is one question that I did have, though, is that we look back at the Old Testament and we Mm -hmm. see, like, uh, in the section I just read— as I stumble, bumbled my way through it, but Ray will make it sound real nice. You're gonna if sound, I don't have to reread it, you're going to sound flawless by the time he's done with it. Is that you see like in Jeremiah, in other places, it's a pattern in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Is that you see uh, God's people stray, adopt uh, foreign gods yep. and, you know, crazy, weird sexual stuff. Like yep. all those things, child sacrifice. And then God brings an enemy in to destroy them, to yes. defeat them as a judgment yes. from God. And so we know that happens in the Old Testament because God says it happens. Yeah, right. And he said it would happen. And then it did happen. And, that, yeah. and then we see it happen. What about today, though? But we're in, in the, the new, new covenant. covenant. Oh, we're in the new era. covenant. No, no. I think it's important to ask when you see societal destruction happening in Christian societies, when you see a place that is dominantly Christian, and then you see decline and you start to see uh, in, internal fracturing, but then especially 
external enemies coming in and successfully routing it, uh, routing that Christian culture, you need to understand that you're seeing the same covenantal pattern unfolding. Because this is one of those things, it, it's, it's like a, a law of reality. In the same in the same sense that you have economic laws and you have physical laws and uh, scientific laws and mathematical laws, there are simply covenantal laws that fu- that are at play in the world all the time. In the sense that if a people uh, blaspheme God, particularly if a people outwardly name God and say, "Yes, He's our God. We love Him. We worship Him." elaborate external displays of religion and worship, but internally their hands are full of blood. They're committing gross sexual sins. They're harboring lies and filth and, and they're not inwardly regenerate. God hates that. I mean, God hates, God will not tolerate that. It's one of the things that I found really interesting about the history of the Islamic conquering of the East and then of many Christian lands is that when they took an area, the Muslims would go to great, great lengths to sacrilegiously destroy any vestige of Christian symbolism, which makes total sense because they're coming in and they're saying, we're getting rid of all these infidels and we're setting up our society. So they would destroy altars, churches, iconography, communion, like the Eucharist, uh, religious leaders. They would rape nuns and priests, murder them on the altar. They would stable horses and churches, they would even say, like, I won't be satisfied until I see churches stabled in this basilica or in this uh, this Christian church. And it spark- that, to me, sparked a few thoughts that if God is chastising his people and he often says, as he's chastising his people, that he hates their worship, he hates their external display while they inwardly har- harbor idolatry and sin— so he hates their singing, he hates their sacrificing, he hates their external displays in the Old Testament. God hates, this is not changed, God hates hypocritical externalism. And so it makes total sense to me that God would, as he did in the Old Testament, when he allowed all the gold to be stripped away from the temple and the temple knocked down and the, the priest to be sent into exile, that he would permit an enemy to utterly desecrate all of their external displays. To me, that just makes total sense. And I, I read the history and I say, th- that is a one-to-one similarity in my mind as I read those two things. Yeah. And I, do you guys agree? Do you think the new covenant has fundamentally changed that reality or removed it? Or am I misreading? Because it was immediate in my mind as I'm reading this. I'm like, look, the exact things you would expect for God to go and knock down with an enemy, he knocked down. Yeah, I mean, the events that led to... God's judgment at beginning at Yarmouk were surprising, but the the action that God allowed the Muslims to overtake Christendom in that in that portion of the world did not surprise me, knowing the sins that they were committing. Yeah. You know, and, and and as you were going through the list of all the things that the Muslims did to different churches and and everything, it it reminded me so much of like some of the beautiful church buildings, even mm-hmm. even here in in Utah as you drive by them and they're being desecrated by pagan idolaters yeah, it's, and being destroyed as places of, you know, they've got the, uh, their, their gay flags and they've got yeah. a gay priest or priestess. You might as well have uh, an altar to Molech. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so the infiltration into the holy places, I mean, you know, churches, building, whatever, what? whatever. No, but no, it, no you're mean, right like, though. Uh, it's, it's happening. You're, you're right. And, and it's important to see here. 
we tend to take shelter in this the external solidity of the cultures we build. You have to understand that, that God won't be mocked. No. Like if you I don't care if you build a cathedral with a graveyard and you build a Christian society, if the soul of that Christian society is eaten away in apostasy, unbelief and idolatry, God will not hesitate. If that's what he needs to do to chastise his people, he chastises his true sons, right? If he loves his people, he will chastise them. God will not hesitate to knock it all down, to give it to the gays, to give it to whoever and say, I would rather them have it. I would rather the gays have it than to let the hypocritical externalism continue. I think that's a very sobering warning that we always have to remember is that you, you fundamentally, you better worship the true and living God in, in, in spirit and truth. But I, I think a big part of that, Brian, I totally agree with you, I, I think is r- repenting. So this yeah. is sort of like the – I'm thinking of like the conservative movement in America. You know, we're like, oh, the woke people, they suck. The left sucks. And, you know, the tranny flag people, we don't like them. Uh, but seldom do we actually see true repentance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, – you know, Doug Wilson pointed this out years ago. I thought it was really helpful. He said you can tell what a nation worships when catastrophe comes. Yeah. So catastrophe came to America and, you know, you'd have a hurricane or something. And the people all say, the government. Oh, FEMA. FEMA needs to do more. Save us, FEMA. Save us, Tom Cruise. You know, (laughs) even now, like, how many people are, like, crying out to the true and living God? How many people are falling on their faces and Mm -hmm. saying, why do we have all the tranny pastors? This The judgment is already here. Yeah. But are we repenting? Right. And I think it's so pivotal. You know, all these, uh, you know, our podcast, we're talking about rebuilding Christendom. When God raised up Gideon, the first thing he had him do is he go to your father's yeah, house. Yeah, your father's house. And go destroy that idol. Yeah. It, it, and there were other the, idols. The one in your house. Yeah. Go start there. So it, I think a, a good lesson for all of us is I can't repent of all the sins that our society has committed. Yeah. But I can sure as heck repent of the ones in my own home. It, and this is so important. This 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 means, if it means anything, it means that, uh, you know, based Christians who post about the trannies, and then go look at porn. Beware. Beware. You need to repent. You need to turn from that sin. How did we get transgenderism and gay marriage and all these things? Well, sexual sin that was much less egregious to start with. It was a a very long road to get to those places. It was fornication. It was pornography. It was the decline of um, sexed piety in society, a million different small sins harbored that grow up and turn gangrenous. And, and so lesson one, and this is why this is actually really practical for us. It, you know, it's not just interesting history. Who would have thought Yarmouk was practical? <laughs> it's practical. I did. It's deeply practical. There's another lesson though here that I think is important to note. And it's kind of on the other side of the issue. It, and it's that Christians, Christians often get played in, in a way that I think Jesus laments when he talks about mm. the sons of the age, this age being wiser than the sons <laughs> of light. You guys are just dumb. He's like, you guys are just dumb. Like you get played constantly. One thing the Muslims understood is that if they were going to win, they had to get rid of all of those symbols of worship, that those were powerful. And, and here we are, Christians will unironically defend religious pluralism today and think that we're being good Christians by saying, well, of course we should defend the Muslims' right to the First Amendment. do whatever they want. And, and, and to me, any society that allows the free exercise of Islamic worship is foolish in the extreme, particularly one that's, that's that in any way desires to not ultimately be conquered by it. 
But it seems like the, the and, and I agree with you. Or any, and, and fill in the blank, Islam is just convenient. Fill in the blank with any virulent false religion. It seems like part of this is, is it's tied to Christian nationalism mm-hmm. and that whole debate. Yeah. But it's really the question, is society, particularly society organized in a nation, is that covenantal? And is it permitted to draw boundaries around things like the first table of the Ten Commandments? Correct. And, and I think the answer is obviously yes. When, it, I think it's obviously yes. Like blasphemy laws, I think obviously ought to be enforced by a Christian government. Obviously. It, it's interesting too because when you go back to the era of the founders and you have you know this the Constitution, everything's written um, – if, you know, today people are saying, well, they were defending religious pluralism. I'm like, these are the same people who wrote this that are in favor of Sabbath laws. And you're trying to tell me they were in favor of religious pluralism. Yeah, and even even to the extent that some of them were in favor of some kinds of religious pluralism, they had to do so by appealing to some of the, the root philosophical ideas politically that ultimately ate out the soul of our entire society. Right. They had to point to pagan philosophers from from – it pains me from France. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this French, French philosoph- political philosophers, and let's say, like, maybe they were right, and maybe that's what's going to. Yeah, they're like reading know. Rousseau, <laughs> right? Like as if Rousseau knew anything at all about any. The Rousseau. Oh, I mean, he, he did write a book on parenting, and he was like <laughs> the biggest. What a, I know. We I can't. He would have to censor it. Yeah. In the words of Glenn Sunshine, Doctor Glenn Sunshine, if Rousseau. Hitler and Stalin were in a room and I had a gun with two bullets. I'd shoot Russo twice. <laughs> Something so like that. Incorrect. And, and I am not in, tr- I can't get in trouble for that because I said in the words of Dr. Oh, Glenn okay. Sunshine. So you didn't say it. Are you the owner of a small business with the potential of a large net income that will likely be subject to onerous taxation? Well, don't wait until you begin filing your tax return for 2023. Now is the right time to work with one of our sponsors, Defined Benefit Partners. In some cases, they can help you legally defer taxes on $200,000 to $300,000 worth of business income. Are you desiring to sell or buy a business but are short on the capital needed for the deal? They also help facilitate such transactions with a win-win scenario for the seller and the buyer. Check out the links in the show notes for more information about Defined Benefit Partners. Would you like to get control of your money? and set up a system that will guarantee for the rest of your life tax-protected compounding interest and growth? How about having 24-7 electronic access to your money for funding wisely chosen investments, home improvements, and other large expenditures without going to the mainstream banks? This is not a dream, but can be a reality when working with our sponsor, Private Family Banking. You can find their contact information in the show notes below. To make this season even brighter, Private Family Banking is giving away a pair of tickets for the upcoming Blueprints for Christendom 2.0 conference hosted by Right Response Ministries. It's a $500 value taking place March 1st through the 3rd in 2024 in Taylor, Texas. To enter the ticket giveaway, join Private Family Banking's email list by sending an email to banking at privatefamilybanking.com with the subject line TICKETS in all caps and include your full name and mailing address in the body of the email. The ticket entry period will end at midnight central time on February 13th in 2024, and the winner will be notified via email on February 14th. You must be 18 years of age or older to enter, and only one email per person can be entered into this giveaway. Thank you.
that's the kind of hip- the stupidity I think that we're faced with. This idea that you can have a politically neutral or a religiously neutral uh, public square and ultimately have that not end up with one God winning the fight. One well, God is going to win. Well, and that's what is interesting to me. So you read Sophronius and you read these guys who were, you know, Christian leaders at the time, any of the leaders of any of the Christian areas, they all assumed that life was covenantal and society was covenantal. They assumed a just war theory, a place for Christian violence. But they also all assumed uh, fundamentally that it was ripe for Christian nations to be Christian. Yeah. I mean, there was like, I don't think that they would have been asking questions like Christians, pietist Christians today do. Yeah. And say like, no, 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 we want this thing called democracy. And, you know, I think democracy is written on the back of the Constitution. I don't the, think you do would you mean have the back of the Ten Commandments? Both. Okay. <laughs> I thought you, yeah. Like as if democracy came down with Moses. He's like, here's the Ten Commandments. And then also the 11th, 12th, and 13th is like, you know, but anybody can do whatever they want. Didn't happen that way. We're going to vote and let everybody kind of decide whatever, like how many of the Ten Commandments they really want to care about. Like, let's just kind of vote a little bit and come on, guys. Come on, guys. Come on. Don't. I'm be. just curious. Do you guys get upset with this? Like with like, – I was thinking through all of this, like with the pietists and with the invasion from the, the pagan gods into the churches. Yeah. I mean like scale of one to ten. What's rage? Which side is rage? Ten. Hmm. I'm like a 13. It depends on the moment, but yeah. Like the, a calm 13? The thing that really inflames me, you know, it, when you look back at like Yarmouk and, and the Crusades, is that you actually had a united Christian front. I think this is probably something we'll get into in the future, so I'm going to jump the gun on this one. But uh, when you see the judgment of God come, it, we'll actually discuss this next episode with uh, Alfred. When you have sensuality in the churches and in the Christian populace as they they continue to uh, name the name of Christ and then commit all sorts of debauchery. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. like you, like God says, you, you pay lip service to me, but your hearts are far from me. Yeah. And so enemies come in as a judgment on God's people, and then everybody unites, mm-hmm. right? The Christians unite. Yeah, often. I don't see that. I, I mean, no. and, and I don't know what stage we're in because, I mean, the Crusades happen. Uh, if if you backdate the Crusades and say Yarmouk was actually the beginning of this battle, mm-hmm. I mean, it's been 1,400 yeah. years, you know, that this has been going on. Mm-hmm. And so I can't say where we are in the battle. But what's really frustrating to me is the, I would say, the vast majority of Christians are blind to and refuse to fight these sorts of battles well, that are and, happening today. And a lot of the time we spend... Or to repent. This genuinely is going to be... I don't want to shoot all of our shot here. This genuinely is going to be something we discuss at length, probably at least in one whole episode. But one of the problems that you have is that many Christians are inclined to spend their greatest vigor fighting other Christians mm. on minutia, comparative minutia. Right. I think that's a good thing to... to uh, as an asterisk yes. is because most of the fighting will be in the church to the degree. Yeah. We must fight in the church, but we have to understand what kind of fighting we're doing in the church. Right. And it shouldn't be the kind of fighting where the pedo Baptists are, you know, the covenanters are fighting against the, the, uh, you know, the OPCers are fighting against the PCAers who are all conservative <laughs> Presbyterians. And then they're all fighting against the reformed Baptists who are, these things matter. 
the fighting that needs to be done in the church though is like hey yeah you can't homosexual sexual attraction is a sin in itself like yes and by by the way we can't just openly flaunt god's law and say lady pastors and all the like those are the the fighting we need to do. You can't church. do your vision casting at the World Economic Forum and then, that, you know, bring it back into the church. It's a problem. That's a problem. Believe oh, it or not. Wow. Okay. That's a thing that happens. The World Economic Forum? That yeah, sounds good, the though. World, did you see George Soros have, like, a stroke during his? Anyway, that was different. <laughs> a different subject for a different day. It was horrible. Yeah, I think. I mean, uh, Dan, known lizard not, person, George not Soros. Not really that. I mean. <laughs> Let's face it, it wasn't that horrible, but. You did say, though, like, uh, you know, the American church, you see people who aren't fighting and. Um, I think a couple things are important. Number one, identify what the the beachheads are of our day. Yeah, sexual sin is certainly one. Absolutely. Um, and so being really clear, like to to Brian's point, those are the fights to fight when, yeah. when it's about sexual stuff. Um, and then number two, I would say is um, the church today and all those things in America is a reflection of its leadership. Mm-hmm. So the problem is you have leaders who have gone really soft on wokeism and CRT. And then they end up on the pages of a, you know, let's say like a New York fashion magazine looking pretty gay. Well, those th- those two things are tied together. So you have bad theology that is speed racing off a cliff with sexual sin. So yeah. I think when you look at that, one of the things that I pray for is we need courageous men. Yeah. And, you know, we need men who are not effeminate. They're not gay. They're not prone to those sins. They're putting those sins to death. Mm-hmm. And we need to, again, it's, it, to me, it's a thing of what are the issues of the day? We need to make sure that we're fighting at that beachhead. Yes. Identify the beachheads, band together, fight at those beachheads. And, and, and do so in a way that you're willing to link arms where we have Armenians. And like, I, don't, I didn't say Armenian there. I'm actually referring to the constitution of the, the armies at Yarmouk. Armenia. Armenians. And they had many different... Uh, nationalities and uh, kingdoms represented there. Later in the Crusades history, we'll see that much of the Christian energy went into infighting between Christian regimes in Europe uh, and, and in the, and to a larger extent, the East-West between Byzantine and, and European forces. And we have issues like that where we have analogs to that today. And you're right. We need to understand what are the real beachheads where we need to gather and fight and defend and win back. And, and and then, uh, and and the most important one I think for today, as we sort of come to the the end of this episode, is to remember back the first beachhead to win is your own heart, your own home, your own church, your own worship before God, internally in secret in truth, and then go from there. All right, so let's let's close it out and let's let's actually just answer the question of what happened in the aftermath of Yarmouk. Here's this big battle. What happened in the aftermath? So we're going to tell that story and then draw things to a close with uh, a conclusion here for you to consider. After the Battle of Yarmouk, Christians as a whole were depressed and fearful, while the victory only added to the confidence of the Muslim invaders. Islam swept through the old Christendom like a plague of locusts, devouring civilization in its wake. After Yarmouk, Islam consumed 3,700 miles of Christian territory in just 73 years. It's estimated that two-thirds of Christendom fell to the Islamic conquest in those 73 years. Jerusalem was besieged and captured by Muslims in 636 AD. Quote, within a score of years from the first assault in 634, the Christian Levant had gone. Syria, the cradle of the faith, and Egypt with Alexandria, the mighty Christian sea, end quote. 
All the important centers of Christianity had fallen. Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, and Caesarea, to name a few. Never before had an invading army moved so swiftly and efficiently, and so permanently. Cities that once used to be a bastion of Christian faith and learning, places like Carthage, which gave birth to Augustine of Hippo, were reduced to no more than rubble by the unlearned and barbaric Muslims. Elsewhere, Christians were martyred, as in Gaza. After 60 Christian soldiers fought valiantly against the Saracens, they were eventually captured. Amir bin Alaz was the Saracen commander who, though impressed by their valor, tried to force them to submit to Islam and renounce Christ. When they wouldn't, Amir sent them to dungeon prisons in Jerusalem. After 10 months, still refusing to submit to Islam, Amir had their commander and nine others brutally beheaded before their fellow soldiers. Amir confronted the remaining 50 soldiers, exasperated that they would not say the Shahada. After charging them one final time to submit and hearing their indignant refusal, an enraged commander ordered the men to be wickedly killed by means of various tortures on account of their faith in Christ. As Ibrahim records, despite the popular claim that Islam bans forced conversions, the martyrdom of early Christians who refused to convert to Islam permeates both Muslim and Christian sources. It is still a very real phenomenon today and was one of the chief reasons that pre-modern Christians saw only the spirit of Antichrist in Islam. When Islam invaded North Africa, it was firmly Christian. North Africa was as firmly Christian as any other area of the empire. Cities and countryside were adorned with graceful churches. The Muslims subdued Tunisia and the rest of North Africa with a force of about 10,000 men, slaughtering Berbers and Christians and destroying churches en masse. They ravaged cities and countries like Libya and Algeria, the evidence of which lies in the crumbling ruins which can still be found today. The Muslim historians of the time were very proud of their exploits and made sure that their readers understood that fact. One historian said, he, that is, Ukba, went to Africa and besieged its cities, conquering them by force and putting the people to the sword. A number of Berbers converted to Islam at his hand, and Islam spread among them until it reached the lands of Sudan. Then Ukba gathered his companions and addressed them, saying, The people of this country are a worthless lot. If you lay into them with the sword, they become Muslims. But the moment your back is turned, they revert to their old habit and religion. End quote. Contrary to popular opinion, Muslims were not at all tolerant of other religions. They forced conversion on Christians and Jews. If a Christian declined to convert to Islam, they were either killed or forced to pay jizya, which was a tax imposed on non-Muslims in the Islamic world that acted as a source of revenue and a tool of oppression for non-Muslims. Thus, the Battle of Yarmouk is considered by almost all historians as one of, if not the most, consequential battles in world history. If the Eastern Roman Greek Empire had defeated the Islamic army at Yarmouk, the history of the world would look quite differently than it does. The consequences of the battle were immense. Mass destruction of the church was followed by the rape of women and often young boys, and many children were enslaved. After their victory at Yarmouk, the Muslims immediately burned the cities of Palestine, Caesarea, and Jerusalem. Actions like these, including the Muslim tradition of burning libraries, committing profane, sexually immoral acts in churches, and their desire of white-skinned women for the purpose of sex slavery, only further demonized Islamic people in the eyes of Christians. The Christian loss at Yarmouk opened the door for all of these atrocities, and the world has never recovered. Christians must strive to be like the men of Issachar, men who understand the times. One of the surest ways to fall short of this kind of wisdom is to fail to understand the times that led to our time, 
to fail to read the story of history rightly. What lessons can we draw from the rise of Islam? What must we learn from the destruction of so much Christian progress? What sins within the camp allow the enemies of God such devastating effectiveness in their wicked onslaught? Are we repeating the errors of the past? One thing is sure, no sin is safe. Start with your own soul, your own hands, your own heart, your own homes, your own churches, schools, and communities. What sins are given free reign? Put them to death. Give your sin no quarter. Daily bear the cross of our Lord. Daily trust in his grace to cleanse, forgive, and protect. There will be other lessons as we continue telling the story of Christendom, certainly, but it seems fitting that the first and gravest lesson be one not pointed outward at the enemies at the gate, but inward at the enemies within. Make no peace treaties with that which will only destroy. Make no friendship with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And remember, winkit quis a winkit, he conquers who conquers himself. And so in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, fight the good fight of the faith with courage and watchfulness. Until next time, we hope you've enjoyed this visit to the King's Hall, and we'll see you then.